Well, I'd like to give everyone a very big and warm welcome to our time together this Good Friday. I'd like to give a special welcome to Paul and Hazel with us. Paul and Hazel are very dear friends to many of us. We've appreciated so much their friendship to us as a church, to many of us as individuals over the years. Uh, been a channel of uh, spiritual blessing to us. And uh, we're so pleased to have you here with us uh, today and to have Paul uh, ministering to us later on in our service. Well, we are at the, the high point of the Christian calendar, aren't we, as we come to this weekend. We're at what you might call the main event, as we think of the things that happen over this weekend. And so today we meet, Good Friday, thinking especially of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we get round to Easter Sunday, we have a a 10.30 family service here and an evening service well as well when we shall be beginning to move on to the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're glad to have you here, glad to have those who are watching online. Uh, Those here are very welcome to stay afterwards for refreshments which are laid on. Well, to begin, uh, lead us into our weekend, I'm just going to read a couple of verses, you needn't look them up, but which just highlight the importance of the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We shall end here the weekend on 1 Corinthians 15, and I'm reading from 1 Corinthians 15 at the outset. For I delivered to you as of first importance... What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Well, shall we pray? Oh Lord our God, we praise you for the events that we're thinking of as we come to this Easter weekend. We can never appreciate fully the wonder of those things and we can never, uh, and we can certainly never respond um, with enough praise, with enough thanksgiving, with enough wonder, with enough love, with enough joy to the things that we are thinking of. But we do delight in our Lord Jesus Christ and his cross and his resurrection. And we thank you that we can meet together today to begin to think about such things. And we pray for the Holy Spirit to be at work in our hearts, softening us, uh, making us responsive to the things which we sing, which we hear read, which are prayed about together, and which Paul preaches from. We ask your blessing on every part of this service for the uplifting of our Lord Jesus Christ and the praise of your holy name. Amen. Well, we're going to sing together our first hymn. It's the hymn, Man of Sorrows, the Uh, the, The older version, the original version, if you like, Man of Sorrows, 
what a name. And as we sing through this, as I looked at it this morning, I was just struck by some of the brief phrases which just convey wonderful biblical truth. Phrases like, man of sorrows, in my place, full atonement, it is finished, when he comes. So rejoice in the wonderful truths about the Lord Jesus as we sing this through together. Our reading uh, this evening is in the Gospel of John. Uh, Paul's preaching from a different part of God's Word later, from Zechariah. But our reading is from the Gospel of John. That's the reading he suggested. We're in John 19 and starting uh, just a little way through verse 16 and reading to verse 37. And I think there's an extra privilege for us, isn't there, when we are reading about the the death and the sufferings of Jesus. So it's good for us to be very thoughtful as we read through this account in the Gospel of John. John 19, verse 16. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross 
to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfil the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, knowing that all was now finished, sorry, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfil the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. 
his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth that you may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Well, we're starting to have our minds taken to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in the next couple of hymns that we were seeing, this one first and then another a little later, it is our prayer that we might be taken further, closer, to have a greater understanding in our heart of the cross and what it means. So our next song is the song, Give Me a Sight, O Saviour, of Your Great Love to Me, the Love That Brought You down from heaven to die on Calvary. Well, 
We're going to have a a time of prayer now, a time of open prayer as we think of the events of Good Friday. Surely when we think of the cross, we want to respond in prayer. As we think of the cost, or as we think of what was achieved, or of the love involved, or of our need, or of the plan being fulfilled. So we're going to have a time of open prayer and I'd like a number to just give perhaps fairly short prayers in some of the things that we're thinking of on a day like this. Uh, But we're going to begin, uh, John Martin has had a hymn on his mind and uh, so I've asked him to read that out to us. Um, and he'll read that using the microphone and then lead us in prayer. But uh, when he's finished, please, let's have a few others uh, just voice a prayer to help us at this time. So thank you, then, John, first. Well, thank, you, thank you, John. Um, I want to give a little bit of history about this particular hymn because it's meant so much to me over many, many years. Well over 40 years ago, uh, at a little assembly in Tunbridge, uh, in a scout hut, Avery Avenue in Tunbridge, and uh, there was the um, Lord's Supper in the morning service. And the pastor there, he he uh, gave out this hymn, which I've never, never actually heard before, and it meant so much to me. But it is a intensely personal hymn, and thinking today that it's one thing to sing it to a group of people, but to actually read it out in public is a challenge, really. And I do feel that, by God's grace, this hymn is true true of me. And I hope that as, as I read it, you'll each feel able, each one, that yes, that hymn is so true of me. And um, maybe we could perhaps, just perhaps close our eyes as we as we read this hymn and think about it, because it is such an intensely personal hymn, um, and it, we, we just can't read it lightly. Let me read it. Jesus was slain for me at Calvary. Crowned with thorns was he at Calvary. There he in anguish died. There from his open side poured forth the crimson tide at Calvary. Pardoned is all my sin at Calvary. Cleansed is my heart within at Calvary. Now robes of praise I wear. Gone are my grief and care. Christ bore my burdens there at Calvary. Wondrous his love for me at Calvary. Gracious his victory, glorious his victory at Calvary. Vanquished our death and hell, oh let his praises swell, ever my tongue shall tell of Calvary. Wonderful if we could go out tonight and each one say yes, that was true for me. Shall we just join in prayer? Oh dear Lord, we do thank you now as we come to a day like this, Good Friday, Lord. And what a good day it is for your people, Lord. We can look back and we can give so much thanks and rejoicing 
dear Lord, that our dear Saviour suffered there on that cross for us, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Oh Lord, we do pray that as we have read your word, sing your praises, pray together, Lord, meditate on your word, that our meditation of Jesus might indeed be sweet. Oh Lord, do draw us unto him, we pray, in wonder, love and praise for all that he did for us on that great day, that good day, that good Friday, so long ago. Lord, we read of that dear man, the dying thief, Lord, there, who realized who this one was next to him. Lord, and we see there how he called upon you, Lord, in his last moments. Lord, remember me when thou comest into my kingdom. And Lord, what gracious words you said to him today, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Oh, Lord, how we do thank you, Lord, today for our wonderful Saviour who loved us and who gave himself for us, Lord. Help us now as we continue in prayer, Lord. Give a great thanks, Lord, for your wonderful love and mercy to us. Amen.
Well, we remain in a spirit of prayer as we sing together our next hymn. And then after that, Paul will be preaching to us. So our next hymn is, Oh, to see the dawn of the darkest day, Christ on the road to Calvary, tried by sinful men, torn and beaten then, nailed to a cross of wood. Thank you. 
Well, can I say what a joy it is for me and Hazel to be here with you today on this special day and to bring greetings to you from Hillfields Church, Coventry. The two churches have had close fellowship over the years, so there's quite a distance geographically between us. And to thank you for your prayers in recent times. Uh, Prayers for me, I've been very much aware uh, during big health challenges that uh, people have been praying. And that is such a blessing and such such a, a great privilege to have people who pray for you, maybe at times when sometimes you don't feel very much able to pray for yourself. Well, I want to take your mind and thought now to a, an Old Testament passage from the book of Zechariah, which is the last but one books in the Old Testament, the book of Zechariah. And chapter 13 and verse 1, very familiar words, where we read chapter 13, verse 1, On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Let me pray before we begin. Living God, we feel and know that we are standing on holy ground as we come to consider this great depth, this infinite depth of the sufferings and sacrifice of our dear Lord and Saviour. And we do pray that as we meditate upon this together for a little while, that your Holy Spirit will come and soften our hearts and shed abroad his love in us and help us to see afresh the truth as it is in Jesus and help us to say, Lord, I believe. Please help my unbelief. So be with us, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. All the books of the Old Testament are waiting books. They look forward Old Testament believers looked forward in faith, waiting for the fulfilment of God's promises. The prophets often spoke of a great coming day, as Zechariah does here. That day, on that day, they say. And in a sense, that day is the whole gospel age, and we have the great privilege of living in it. But if we were to narrow it down to one specific day, it's surely the day that we are remembering together today, that day when Christ was crucified. We look back on it. They looked forward. The prophet Isaiah says, the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and gold. What a day when humankind do that. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. And this prophet, the prophet Zechariah, he says in chapter 2 that many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day. And chapter 12, in chapter 12 he speaks of a, a poured out blessing on that day. And chapter 14 says, on that day living water will flow out of Jerusalem. 
Yes, it's a great day, isn't it? It's a longed-for day. It's an anticipated day. It's, as John said at the beginning of the service, it's the main event. And now we're living in the light of it. The fountain is opened, and history has witnessed it and recorded it, and how blessed we are tonight. Let's understand that. How blessed we are to be able to look back on it and to try to enter into the blessing of it. So let's try to just very simply consider this together. And we begin with the fountain. The prophet says, on that day there shall be a fountain. Now the thing about a fountain is it's a constant supply. It's a spring. It's always bubbling up. It's always flowing. It's a picture of life and cleansing. You remember that Moses struck the rock and water gushed out of it and that meant life for people who otherwise would have died in the wilderness. But that water from the rock, that was a one-off, wasn't it? In the temple there was provision for cleansing. There were great basins or lavers where the priests washed their hands but it wasn't running water and it soon became clouded and dirty and needed to be replaced. Remember Naaman was told he had leprosy. He was told he must dip in the Jordan seven times and he was cleansed of his leprosy. But that was a a temporary cure for physical ailments. But this fountain is different. This water supply is a constant supply and it provides spiritual cleansing spiritual satisfaction. In Psalm 42, a a hunted deer pants for flowing streams and it's a picture of people thirsting for God. So let me ask you tonight, are you doing that? Are you thirsty for God? Do you want to know truth? The truth as it is in Jesus. This world very much needs truth. You need truth. You need to know what is true. You need to know about the forgiveness of sins. Uh, You you, you need to know uh, that there is a way of, of life. Are you thirsting for God? For spiritual satisfaction? Again, anticipating this fountain, the prophet Isaiah says, Come! What an invitation. It's as real and powerful today as ever it was. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And in Psalm 36, God himself is described as the fountain of life. So you're out walking on a hot summer's day and you come across a stream and you follow it to its source and there you find a spring. A spring of pure, clean water. And next to that spring, there's a broken, cracked tank and a puddle of stagnant water in the bottom of that tank. What are you going to drink from, do you think? The spring or the tank? Well, God speaks through his servant, the prophet Jeremiah, of the folly of his people. He says, my people have committed two evils. Evil number one, they've forsaken me. Oh, it's a disastrous thing to do. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living water. Evil number two, they've hewed out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Is that what you're still doing? 
You're still trying to find satisfaction in your own ideas or in the pleasures of life or even in your own religion. Are you forsaking the the fountain of living water? Well, let me call you back to this fountain tonight. Think fountain and think salvation. Think life. Think fullness. Think truth. Think cleansing. Think satisfaction. And all of this meeting in one glorious person, Jesus Christ, and in one glorious message, Jesus Christ and him crucified. O Christ, he is the fountain, the deep, sweet well of love. That's the fountain. Let's think about the fountain opened. Water is so precious, isn't it? So vital. If people in olden days thought that there was a a well or a spring underground, then they'd dig. They'd dig to open it up. And our text speaks about the fountain opened up, dug out. And God himself is the one who does the digging. God has deliberately opened this fountain. It was always bubbling up in his eternal purposes, in the covenant of grace, in his determination to save sinners. And then he digs it out in human history. The story of the Old Testament, especially God's dealings with the nation of Israel, establishing the priesthood, the gift of prophecy, giving covenant promises. That's the story of God digging out this spring, digging out this fountain, this fountain of blessing. And the prophecy is that the fountain will be opened so that everyone can know about it and access it and benefit from it. And this spectacular thing has now happened in the incarnation of the Son of God. The eternal word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And God made himself known. God was manifest, revealed in the flesh. In the real humanity of Jesus Christ, there's a fullness. There's a fullness of grace in him like there's a fullness of light in the sun or a fullness of water in the sea, only more so, infinitely more so. And this human nature of our Lord Jesus Christ cannot be separated from his deity, from his divinity. He is the God-man. His humanity is the channel, the conduit, if you like, which is inseparably united to the infinite inexhaustible fountain of life which is God himself the deity Paul says in his letter to the Colossians that in him that is in the Lord Jesus Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell turn that one over in your mind you'll never get to the bottom of it in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace. Now listen, how does he make peace? By the blood of his cross. That's how he makes peace. It's amazing. All the fullness of God dwelling in the person of Jesus Christ. The, The seraphim of Isaiah's vision, they call out, don't they, holy, holy, Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The whole universe 
is full of the glory of God. And yet, yet, all this fullness of God is pleased to dwell in one man in human history. The Apostle John says that Jesus is full of grace and truth. And so it stands to reason, doesn't it, that there's grace enough, there's sufficient grace in this fountain which is the all-sufficient God. Through Jesus Christ that grace flows. The fountain has been opened up. It flows freely. So when we come to the crucifixion, it matters tremendously who Jesus is. The one who suffers. Who he is. He's the redeemer. He's the atoning sacrifice. He's the God-man. He's mighty to save. And it is at Calvary uniquely that God has opened up this fountain. Sometimes in city centres you see a fountain that changes colour. If I can say it reverently, as we look at this fountain this evening, it changes colour. The water turns red and we see the blood of an atoning sacrifice. A sacrifice that really does turn away the wrath of God. A genuine, permanent, powerful propitiation for sin. You know, in the Old Testament sacrifices, there was a a lot of blood. It was quite shocking, really. You may have a kind of almost a romantic view of it, a ritualistic view of it, but it was quite a shocking experience to see all that death and to see all, all, that, all that blood. There wasn't anything genteel about it, was there? And as the Jewish worshipper saw all that blood, he knew that sin is serious. He knew the wages of sin is death. He knew that sin is an infinite offence against a holy God. And the Old Testament believer knew that his sin must be dealt with. That God cannot look on sin with any degree of allowance. And through the offering of animal sacrifices, he learnt that without the shedding of blood, it couldn't happen. There could be no reconciliation. There could be no remission of sins. Sins could not be dealt with. How costly is our salvation as we think about death and as we think about blood? How great is our need as we think of what sin has brought into the world and into our lives? On the cross of Calvary, men and women, there was a lot of blood. And there was nothing genteel about it. Nothing sentimental. Sometimes people get sentimental about the cross, don't don't they? But it was brutal. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus suffered such anguish that Luke tells us that his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling to the ground. 
Then in the judgment hall of Pilate, there was the scourging and the smiting and the spitting and the crown of thorns. There was a lot of blood. The blood flowed. And then at the cross itself, those we read of it, didn't we? Those cruel nails, they pierced his hands and his feet and his side. And it was a fountain of blood, wasn't it? A fountain, that fountain was opened in the wounds of Jesus. Fountain opened for sin and for uncleanness. But it's not so much the quantity of that blood. It's the quality of it. The power of it. The virtue of it. The efficacy of it. By that word efficacy, I mean it it works. It achieves something real. So do try to grasp tonight just how unique, how precious, how invaluable is this blood of Jesus Christ. It's not like the blood of any other man or any other sacrifice. This is the one true, permanent sacrifice for sin that all the temporary sacrifices of the Old Testament have been pointing towards. This blood is the blood of God himself. Now, how dare I say a thing like that? Well, I daren't, except that it's in the Bible. When saying farewell to the elders of the Ephesus church, the Apostle Paul refers to the church of God, the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. The church of God which he purchased with his own blood. An old writer and preacher, J.C. Philpot, he said there was divinity in every drop of it. Divinity in every drop of the blood of Christ. The Puritan Isaac Ambrose says there's an infinity of worth in the price offered for our salvation, an infinity of worth in the death of Christ. You see, by this sacrifice, the righteousness of an infinite person becomes ours, the righteousness of God. No wonder the Apostle Peter says, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You see, it was, it was vital in the shedding of this blood that the victim, the sacrifice, should be without blemish. His whole life, his whole character, his obedience to the Father without any sin or flaw or mistake. It was vital that he should be real in his humanity, man to suffer, real in his divinity, God to save. And an infinity of suffering to deal with an infinity of sin. And if you know anything about yourself as a sinner, that'll be very attractive to your soul. 
that there is a deep in God which is answerable to the, the depths of need in you. You see this fountain, it has a voice. It speaks. This blood has a powerful voice. It speaks, the writer to the Hebrews tells us, it speaks better things than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood was spilled by his own brother Cain and that called out, it spoke, it called out from the earth, it called out for judgment. Jesus' blood was also spilled by his brothers. Remember what Peter said on the day of Pentecost? He charged his hearers, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. You've done it. You've rejected him. You've turned against him. But it speaks, this blood that you have shed, this speaks of salvation. This speaks of deliverance. What voice is that which speaks from, for me, from heaven's high court for good, and from the curse has set me free? It's Jesus' precious blood. And C.H. Spurgeon, the uh, great 19th century preacher, he tells us you can't be accepted without Christ, but when you've received his merit, you can't be unaccepted. That's great, isn't it? When you've received his merit, you can't be unaccepted. You can't fall out of the covenant of grace. So we've thought about the fountain, the fountain and the fountain open. Now let us think a bit more specifically about the fountain open for sin. The prophet tells us this fountain will be opened on that day for people. For the house of David. For the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And this is the glory of the cross of Christ. We've caught a glimpse of it already in our service, haven't we? It shows that God is for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? His promises are invested in the house of David. The Saviour is born in the line of David. He comes from the seed of Abraham. And through him, all the nations of the earth are blessed. The glory of the Lord is revealed and all flesh can see it together. It's for sinners that this fountain flows. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now we could take, I think in this text, we could take sin and uncleanness as referring to the same thing. What cleansing power there is in the blood of Jesus to take away my sin. What glory there is in the righteousness of Jesus to make me accepted in the beloved. But I think we can also see a distinction here between justification and sanctification. The fountain open for sin particularly point to the blessing of justification, being made right with God. And the fountain uh, open for uncleanness perhaps particularly points to the blessing of sanctification. That is a life that is rescued not only from the guilt of sin, but from the power of sin, from the dominance of sin. As I said, the sacrifices of Old Testament worship we're always showing that sin has to be dealt with. It can't just be swept under the, the carpet. Sin is serious. It's deadly. It breaks God's holy law. It offends him. 
it falls short of his glory. It separates. Sin is a barrier. It separates between a holy God and a sinner. And those Old Testament sacrifices, they always evoked the question, how can I be right with God? Has that become an important question to you? Does it matter? Well, of course it matters. It matters hugely. How can I be right with God? How can I be justified? Now, the Old Testament, as well as the New Testament, teaches that we can only be justified by faith. Abraham was justified by his faith. But the full revelation about justification doesn't come until the New Testament with the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And you won't see the beauty of it until you see your sin as a problem it really is in your heart, in your life, in your standing with God. You see your sin as an infinite offence against an infinitely holy God. And then to see that sin forgiven. To see that sin wiped out. Dealt with. Through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. His blood shed. The fountain opened for sin. And then to say tremblingly, Lord, I believe. I believe. Please help my unbelief. And the Apostle Paul says, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. It's a possession. It's something that is given to us freely by God's grace. We've got it. We have peace with God. We look to Christ. We look away from ourselves. We believe in him. And by sheer grace, we're made right with God. And this is the gospel. Don't you love it? In all its freeness and its fullness and its accessibility as a fountain that is opened, you come to this fountain and you look for your sin and it's gone. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgression from us. And that's how he does it. By opening up this fountain for sin. And it's gone, not just for now, but forever. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not the part, but the whole, is nailed to his cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh my soul. Now the devil is going to try to keep you away from this fountain, isn't he? He's going to try his hardest to keep you away from the fountain. He'll tell you all kinds of things. He'll tell you that you've sinned too far and too long. He'll tell you that you've sinned against light and knowledge and that you've deliberately hardened your heart against God and there's no hope for you. Or he'll tell you that you can try to keep God's law and win God's favour that way by turning over some kind of a new leaf. More subtly, and he is subtle, he'll tell you that you need a deeper experience than you have had of the conviction of your sin. Don't listen to him! Don't listen to him! Come to this fountain, it's open! 
It's open for you. It's open for sinners. It's open to deal with this very problem that you've got, your sin and your uncleanness. Come just as you are. It's the only way to come. There is no other way. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. All of it. So forsake those broken systems that can hold no water. Come to Christ. If you've never come to him before, understand afresh tonight that it is by sheer grace through faith that you're saved, not of you, not of works, in case you should boast, but it is the free gift of God. Rejoice in your justification. This fountain is open for sin. But it is open for sin and uncleanness. Not only is the guilt of sin dealt with by the blood of Jesus, but its power is too. It stands to reason it must be. Its power is defeated. So let's think finally of the fountain opened for uncleanness, specifically. Justification is a work that is done for us. It's accomplished outside us by the redeeming blood of Jesus. His righteousness imputed to us. Sanctification is a work that is done in us. And with our active cooperation, it is righteousness imparted to us. Now, you're as much justified when you first come to Christ as you'll ever be. Think perhaps of your greatest Christian hero, whether that person is now dead or still alive. That person is not a jot more justified than you are if you are in Christ. Not a jot if your hope is in him. But he or she may have been, probably was, is, quite a bit more sanctified than you are than I am. What we need to understand is that this fountain is the secret of our sanctification. It's the secret of us changing. Paul says in his letter to Corinth, he says, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us, and then he lists some things that Christ became to us from God. Wisdom from God. Righteousness from God. Sanctification. Christ became sanctification and redemption. We need the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross as much for our sanctification as we do for our justification. You know, there were three men on crosses, weren't there, when Jesus was crucified? One of them was dying for sin. That was the dear Lord Jesus himself. That's what he was doing. He was dying for sin. One of them was dying in sin. That was the unrepentant dying thief. Tragically, he died in his sin. It's possible to do that. It's a terrible thing. May that happen to no one here. Something to flee from, something to pray about. Well, please, may I never do that. I don't want to die in my sin. The other one, the third one, he was dying to his sin. 
His sanctification was very brief. It didn't last long because his life was ebbing away. But you can see the clear marks of sanctification. A change took place in him. An amazing change. Miraculous change took place in this other dying thief. He began to see the Lord Jesus Christ very differently, didn't he? This man, he says, we indeed justly, this man, he's done nothing wrong. Nothing amiss. Lord, please remember me when you come into your kingdom. There's spiritual life. There's a thirst for holiness. There's change. The work of sanctification has begun in this dear man. And the secret of living the Christian life and loving righteousness and hating sin and being changed from one degree of glory to another, the secret of it is the dying love of Jesus. As you look to the cross of Christ, you see the one who who you pierced. And you see sin there in its true colours, what it has done. And you see the love of God in its true colours, that God commends his love towards us in that while we were still sinners, still enemies, still as lost as we could be, Christ died for sinners. He died for his enemies. He died for the ungodly. And you're captured, aren't you? Your heart is captured, captivated by this new love, by the love of Jesus. And that love compels us no longer to live to ourselves, but to him who loved us and gave himself for us. And this, as I say, is the secret of a cleansed life. The fountain is open for sin and for uncleanness. Changed character. Deliverance not only from the guilt of sin, but also its power, its grip. Again, the writer of the Hebrews says, refers to the sin which so easily besets us. So easily gets a grip upon us. And this fountain is open for that kind of sin. That kind of uncleanness. It's significant that the next verse refers to idols, Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 2. And it refers to idols remembered no more and idols forgotten, idols forsaken. Rabbi John Duncan, another old writer and preacher, he said, sanctification is all the work of God and all the work of man. All the work of God and all the work of man. You think about a farmer. A farmer depends on God entirely, doesn't he? If, if God doesn't send his rain and the sun upon his crops, then it's, it's a lost cause. And yet the farmer's also got to do his bit. He's got to plough and he's got to sow and he's got to, has got to fertilise what is sown. And so we, we, do, we ha- do have to cooperate with God in that great work of sanctification. You see, sometimes we, we, we refer to sin and uncleanness as if they were just sort of vague or general concepts, but they're not. It, they're real. They're, they're personal. So whenever you 
all I are proud. When we fail to treat other people well, when we behave selfishly, when we have dirty thoughts, when we tell lies, that's uncleanness before God. That is specific sin, isn't it? And that uncleanness is is real in us. It has its hold on us, its power over us. But the fountain is open. God himself has opened it up. And it's open for this very thing, to deal with this very problem. It's open for sin and for uncleanness. And it's not there just for the beginning of the Christian life, but for the whole of it. And it's there to deliver us not only from the guilt of sin, that's massive, but also the dominating power of sin over our lives. And so we have to keep coming back to it, don't we? Do you find that? You have to keep coming back to the cross. You have to keep coming back to this fountain. Are you still trying to find satisfaction and the answer to your sin problem in a broken system? It's folly, isn't it? Can you see the foolishness and the emptiness of it? Can you see how mad it is to do that? No, just look again and see the Lord Jesus Christ hanging on the cross of Calvary. See him bleeding. Hear him crying. Hear his words to the dying thief. Today you will be with me in paradise. Hear him crying out, I thirst. What an amazing cry from the one who created all the water supplies in the universe. And here he is in his humanity, in his broken humanity. And he says, I thirst. And hear his cry of dereliction from the cross, my God. My God, why have you forsaken me? And be sure, yes, be sure of this, that you do hear his cry of victory. Because everything hangs on it. It is finished, he said. The great work of salvation is done. The types and the shadows of the Old Testament law are fulfilled. The picture is painted. The work is done. And the resurrection on the third day proves it and settles it and vindicates it. It is finished, he says. A complete work. Nothing to be added to it. Fulfillment. Satisfaction. There is victory in the blood of Christ. It's a complete, ever-flowing, efficacious cleansing stream and that's why we call Good Friday good we call it good because the wonderful things that flow from the death of Christ for us for poor sinners who have nothing to say and nothing to claim but his great love and his great work for us so that we can say with the Apostle Paul, the Son of God 
loved me. What a thing to say. The Son of God loved me. And he gave himself for me. Amen. Now we're going to conclude as we sing this hymn, the last hymn. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. May the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, 
through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory for ever and ever. Amen.